That's a that's a very cool guitar. I you, you I, from what I've heard, you got it at Ray Henning, and uh, which is of course a famous you know Austin shop where Steve Ray got his number one, and a number of cool guitars have come out of that shop. So. There was a guy named Danny, big guy. Danny had a big kind of heavy set, and every town has one. You know, they have the guy that's like. He's not a hot guitar player, but he's good enough. But he's really knowledgeable about vintage and era back when it it was that way. Like in L.A., there was a guy that I when I worked at a music store, his name was Chris Bristol. And he was like he would see the guitar and he'd know the serial number and all that stuff. And this guy's name was Danny. I can't remember his last name. And he sort of ran Ray Hennings. OK. And we had just I think it might have been our first trip to Texas, really. We went once to play Houston when we first got a, our record deal, but I think we were we went back there to play like Liberty Lunch or some some joint. Yeah. And I needed I had one guitar. I had my Sunburst Telly, Sunburst with the binding of '59, and so I was looking for another guitar like that as a backup. And I went to uh, to Heart of Texas, and guys like, "Hey, what are you looking for?" You know, and I told him, and he said, "I got something in the back," and he pulled this out. And it, it had a, uh, he said, this was, this Eric Johnson, Eric was just breaking at that time. Right. Eric Johnson, this is his guitar, but he doesn't like it. He didn't want it. Um, and it was refinned Sunburst. And in like 1985 or whatever it was, the refin world wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. Right. So right away you knew it was a refin. You're just like, ah, that that's not a good looking finish. But when I... Like when I told you the story about the twin reverb, I was concerned with like the guts of the instrument. I didn't care about the anything could be fixed except yeah. for the wood. So, and he said the frets along the neck had not been leveled off because Eric liked it that way. And I don't know what the hell that means, but it like it felt like razor blades on the edge. <laughs> so, um, I forget, and it was like, you know, it might have been eight hundred bucks. Yeah. And uh, which was a decent. It was a decent amount of money. It was an Esquire. And so I was like, I played it. It was totally, you know, binding slab rosewood. It was the feel. It would be a great backup. And I said, I'll take it. So I bought it and slow and I brought it back home. And I was still using my 59 Sunburst. And I had a really good friend out here named Pat Wilkins. And I said, I need to refin this, but I can't do it Sunburst because nobody does a good Sunburst. It looks doesn't look right right uh, we did black so he refinned it black um and like i said i was into like steel sound so i put a mass bridge on it kind of maximum sustain and not maximum twang uh although it's hard not to get you're gonna twang with a telly no matter what but yeah anyway um and i'm you know i think the pickup is original i'd have to take a look uh I've used a lot of Seymour stuff in my life and he has been very kind to me and, and he can really nail, he, you know, first time I met him, I brought him a guitar and he said, you like the sound of this pickup? I said, yeah. He says, go to lunch and come back. And I was with my wife and my son and I, and in Santa Barbara and I went to lunch and I came back and he, we a beat it real quick and he totally nailed it. 
Wow. So he, he's he's brilliant with with all that stuff. Yes. So I don't I don't know, but um, this really became my number one. Yeah. For quite a while because it was so it played so well, and which I've talked about is that um, the top and the bottom, like on a telly, you're gonna depending on how you set your rig up, you're gonna fight a little bit, you know, with with having the right amount of twang and bass. And if it's right amount of twang and bass, you might get a glassy top. Or if you get a twangy top, you get a muddy bottom. Right. The guitar is, it's even across. So when I do my normal setup on my amp, it was the most even sounding instrument. And because specifically for Dwight, I was exploring a lot of low strings, like playing off of your like off the bottom strings, um, once I could get those to sound right, the treble was never too bright. It was just right. So it it was it still is. It's it's probably the as far as like just pulling it off the rack and getting lucky. It's the best guitar I've ever had. Wow! It's a natural. Yeah, it's you know it's it's interesting because yeah you, you know of course early you know just slightly earlier you were playing that you know the Telecustom with the you know with the sunburst finish. And of course, all those you know photos were taken of you with it. But then it's like once you got that guitar, it seemed to really have supplanted the other one as your favorite. Yeah, and and you know my, the other one, the Sunburst is definitely close to me spiritually. Yeah, I, I touched it so much, so I have much more of a personal connection because I was playing it in the early days in the early '80s. Once I got that guitar up running, that was the first good guitar I ever had. So it was a guitar. I realized I could play above the above the 12th fret without struggling. I thought you, you had to struggle because it was the nature of it. It was like, no, it's not a very good guitar. <laughs> so it was a guitar that I could really fluidly play throughout above the 12th fret. And consequently, it was my first good guitar. But this this became the best guitar. Yeah. And once, once I started playing, it was like, why shouldn't I play the best guitar? And I never, in in all the early stages of Dwight, I never used anything but the neck, the, the lead pickup. Right. Never used any other pickups. Not until, you know, maybe five, five years into his career when we expanded so much. But um, all that early country stuff, all of it was on the lead pickup. I mean, if I was really a brave guy, like I told Billy Gibbons, uh, I said, if I he said, oh, you're playing with one pickup, man. That's pretty ballsy. And I said, if I was really ballsy, I'd take this volume control and these two knobs off the guitar. <laughs> I don't ever touch those either. And just give me a volume pedal and plug me in, and I'm good, you know. Yeah. Um, because I never touched the volume pedal. I mean, the volume to volume tone or or pickup selector. Yeah. So you know, like like on the Esquire, I'm sure I'm assuming it's got the regular Esquire wiring where you have, of course, the the mud sound, you have the, uh, uh, the the sound where it's going through the tone control, and the sound where it's not going through the tone yep. control. It's a little hotter. So, yeah. which which of those do you prefer? I was always on the on the lead. I, I was always on the lead. And here, and that's very subtle. You probably can't even hear it. Yeah, it's just a little under. It's just a little underneath a support, and then. Yeah, the, the mud sound. Why did you do that? Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea. 
you talk to the guy at Fender and go, and why did you do that? Yeah. What, what exactly is that, that one for? The one that doesn't sound good? Right. Why is there a, I don't like how you sound button on my guitar? Yeah. Let's just, so, that, that's what you, you put it, you put it on that and that's when you hand it to the guy that wants to sit in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't touch anything. Yeah. There you go. So, and I think, uh, also, let's see. Yeah, the, the tone control is, is uh, not in play. So you mentioned earlier that with, with that with your telecustom, the sunburst one, that it was the first time you could play up higher and it played well. Was that just because it was set up better or what, what was the difference? Um well the telly that I was playing before that was a was a black guard, a, a real one, like a 51 or a 52 or something. Yeah. But it, it had been tortured, you know, uh, it had had a couple of refrets and those necks have a real high radius to the neck yes. and it's a radius that comes all, you know, there was no multi-radius. Right. The radius comes all the way down. So it was a struggle to play above the 12th fret because you really had to dig in because you would fret out. There was so far you could bend it and then it would hit the, the top of the next fret because of the ang because of the angle. So that guitar was a cool guitar and it was a telly and it was the telly I, I wanted to play and it was a early fifties. But structurally, you know, it had it had some problems, you know, yeah. it just it, those guitars structurally have problems. Yeah. Because because of the radius of the neck mostly. So the the fifty nine did it have the the regular stock frets on it the little vintage frets or, or had it been refretted with bigger frets? It it had been re I refretted it. Mm -hmm. um, I never used big frets. I used tall frets. Okay. So hey Kevin, what's the fret number? Sixty one hundred five Dunlop. Okay. And those came out about at that time where it's like I said I like a high fret. Um, but I don't like guys who are like, you know, way back. You're you're young, but in the early days, they did some whacked out stuff like put bass frets on it. People did all kinds of crazy shit, right? Right, right. Uh, trying to customize their guitars, and it was nowhere near the art that it is today. So when the sixty one oh fives came out, and, and I was refretting that guitar and getting it ready to play, um, I put those in there, and those are my frets of choice forever. Okay. on every instrument I have because I want the instrument to feel the same whatever whatever instrument I play and the frets the frets and the and the and the um radius of the neck are big players in that yes they are so with the 59 it's a slab rosewood so it's not as severe it it didn't have a um multi-radius neck of course but it was not as severe as the maple telly and the frets were higher and it, and I had I found this guy in Glendale, not far from my house. His name was Jack Willick, and Jack Willick was an older guy who'd been out here forever, and he was a guitar repair guy. And he, um, back in way back in the day, he had gotten out of the Navy. I'm going to guess in the 40s, and he wanted to work on guitars. And Gibson had a lifetime guarantee. 
but you had to be an authorized Gibson guitar repairman, mm -hmm. which meant you had to go to Kalamazoo, I think, wherever they were, it must have been Kalamazoo, and you had to spend like six months there and study. And yeah. your and your uh, your um, your your graduation was was uh, was predicted on a guitar that you had to build. So he had to build a guitar from scratch. Wow. And then he would be certified to be the guy. So he got to be the guy, I think for I think it was in Chicago, and then he came to LA. And he lived like blocks from my house. And I found out about him. And it was like, oh, Jack Willick. So a few of the some of the hipper cats said, Yeah, Jack Willick, he's the guy. And he was sort of semi-retired. He worked out of his garage. Coolest dude on the planet, really cool guy, and super knowledgeable, obviously, about guitars. So I brought it to him and he just made it awesome. I mean, it was like this really plays. This is this does everything I would ever ask of a guitar. I have a real guitar. Yeah. You know, it's like buying an L5 or something where it's just perfect. Tellies aren't perfect. They're kits. Yeah. And sometimes you have to beat them into submission. You know, you have to work at it. It's a difficult instrument. To, once you buy into it, though, you can't go. You'll never get what you get from the telly anywhere else. I, I agree. So. You know, it's 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 initially a struggle. And we talked about that before, because when I first got the telly, I kept trying to make it sound like a Gibson till I started exploring telly players. And there wasn't a lot. You know, my te my guys uh, were blues guys and they were all three thirty five guys, except for maybe Albert King. So it was humbuckers. And when I started playing the telly, I had to find a template. I mean, how do these guys who's playing it? And I, I actually saw Albert Collins in like. Uh, like 1973 or something and just freaked me out. You know, it's unbelievable what he was doing, the sounds he was getting. And we discussed those other guys. So there was a whole host of telly players that I gravitated towards and said, these guys are not fighting the treble. They're right. giving into the treble. Yes. They're using the treble. And that takes some technique and accuracy. And I always say, you know, not to brag on myself, but I put in thousands of hours. But if you're going to play a Telecaster through a twin with no speak, no stomp boxes or anything with just a cable, you better know how to play because it's going to it's going to be a rough, rough road when you start stumbling through stuff because everything is exposed. Yeah. Every little clink, clink, plank, plink, that type of stuff. So consequently, it was a great study for me um, when I gave into the telly and started playing that way. Yeah. You, yeah, I, I want to keep talking about the players, but as far as like, uh, you know, you mentioned frets and, and radius. Did you have those uh, fingerboards flattened out to be a different radius at all? Because I know that was even in in Austin at Heart of Texas, Michael Stevens used to flatten out some of the, you know, the, the oh, yeah. radiuses of, of those old tellies. And I, I know guys that have slab boards that got them in the eighties from heart of Texas and Michael Stevens would flatten the radius and put bigger frets on them. It was part, that was part of the, 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 I guess the, uh, experiment back then. Yeah. Cause they, you know, there was no CNC machines. Yeah. Everything was done by hand. That's why you would get a good guitar and a not so good guitar. Yeah. There were, you know, there's human elements involved, but, um, there was a guy, you might know Mike McGuire. Yeah. Valley Arts. Yeah. Shop yeah. And so he was here at a place called Valley Arts. Mm -hmm. And they were a music store in the Valley. And they were like the coolest store because their claim to fame was they worked on Larry Carlton's guitars. 
and him and Larry were buddies. And Larry was in his heyday. So yeah. it was like people would flock to this store because he was a great repairman. So he was the first one because I think I think when I was talking about a 335 or I had a 335, he was like, oh, yeah, we got it. Because they were doing it to Gibson's as well. We got to take the frets down. So I was like, yeah, cool, cool. You know, I was just going along with whatever he said. Uh, but after when I got the telly and I put the right frets on it, I didn't need to level them. And I also felt that it was sort of like, why do I, it's like the front pickup on an Esquire. It's like, why do I want to make the frets lower? So I was, I had no problem when I started playing the tellies and with 6105s, I didn't have, I didn't have a problem. So I never beveled the frets above the 12th fret, but that was the way they did it. You know, um, they used to bleed people too and put leeches on them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we talk about this stuff and like, yeah well, i had a good a little side story on the guitar my 59 uh i guess it was my 59 strat i've got a strung through the body a hardtail strat yeah. it's a reef in but it's a great guitar it sounds killer it's a real 59 and i played it on long white cadillac and a few songs like that played it on the michelle records anyway i, I was duffing around at this restaurant with some friends and I brought the guitar out to play, right? So I put it up on the stand, and we took a break. And I and this is this happened like two years ago, and this had never happened to me before that. I walked about twenty feet away from the guitar, and I'm standing there, and I look back, and I see the guitar sitting on a stand on the stage, and I'm like, going, "Oh no, I, I can't, I can't leave that guitar there." Right. I mean, it's worth forty grand. Yeah, you can grab it, run out the door, and you know, I mean, they'd, they'd have a hard time selling it as Pete Anderson's, but for me, it's worth a, it's worth a lot of money if I sold it. So, and it's a great guitar, and I just I had the thought, it's like I got the whole time I'm on the break, I got I can't walk outside, I got to watch the guitar. I got a little paranoid, and I usually don't, but it dawned on me that day, it's like, and it was sad because it's like I can't really take these guitars out to play. Yeah. So I came back on Monday, and Kevin was here. And I said, I need to build just something to play in the clubs that if I've never had an instrument stolen, you know, knock on wood, thank God. But if something happened, I wouldn't be losing, you know, the Holy Grail. So we got into Mark Jenny, who's a guy that does relics and all that stuff in Missouri. And uh, who's the neck guy? Music Craft? Music Craft. Yeah, let's do that. Got Music Craft. Oh, get the white telly. That's the one. Music Craft, who has aged woods. Mm-hmm. So they made me the neck. And I called everybody up and I said, I don't want any hot rod shit. I want what was what was the fingerboard, the neck, and the body on a 59 Strat or a 59 Tele. First, I did a Tele. So I said, what was it? So they built me what would have been off the rack, a 59 Tele. This is a put together. Yeah. And it, I had it relic a little bit just for fun. Um, and because I've been playing, um, I went from like with Dwight, I would play triads. Country music is triads. Yeah. And when I started playing on my own, I was playing. 
tetrachords, which is a four-note chord. So I started playing bigger chords, more complex, and I found that I had some Anderson guitars, which had the standard neck width, and the neck started to feel really small to me because the, the reverends are, have a wider neck. And so this neck is one like one sixteenth or something wider. That's the only difference. But it looks, and I put a middle pickup on it just to be goofy, but I use it. So I went to, I went to Kevin and we called up all the guys and they're all boomers, right? They're all my age guys that suffered through the early, the dark ages. And now they have it completely wired. You know, it's like, oh, you need this screw, this pick guard, this pick, this thing, this stopper. If you want that capacitor, they've got all the little tricks. So I built a, I built a 59 telly, which I just showed you. Yeah. And it works. And I, t I got it. Second day I had it, I played it on a session and I went, this is my new number one. This thing for, for not Pete Anderson, but for duffing around. So I play the reverence for my, my own show, but I played it on a session immediately. I A beat it with my sunburst and it sounded the same. I was like, okay. And I said, I need a strat. So I built a strat. So I've got a strat and a telly and they're, you know, my favorite, like goofing off, going to jam sessions and, you know, beating around stuff. They're my favorite guitar. So are those Duncan Seymour Duncan pickups that are, that are in there or what are they? Um, I think I've used, I've used a lot of Seymour antiquities, Kevin, these are all Seymour's? Uh, they made those. Yeah. Custom shop? Yeah. M MJ in the custom shop, right. who obviously I have a great relationship with, she makes them for me. And I told her, I said, I don't want anything hot rod. I don't want anything new, hippy-dippy. I want a 59, you know, this is a, is this a flat top? No. Staggered top, 59. I want a, you know, middle pickup. You know, Strat 59, mm -hmm. knock neck pickup. So, they're, they're, you know, he's perfect. He, he's, he's, he'll go down as the greatest pickup guy in the history of pickups, I think. You know, I mean, we got guys that invented shit, but Seymour, as far as like understanding from letter A to letter B, you know, or A to Z, whatever, there's not going to be anybody like him. Yeah. Um, so, that's what's in these guitars. I've also experimented a little bit with, um, uh, what's our other buddy's name? Uh, Novak. Oh, yeah, Curtis Novak. Yeah, another pickup winder. Yeah. You know Curtis? Yeah. Well, the funny thing about Curtis is that when you talk about, well, you know, he's not really a rocket scientist, he worked for JPL. He worked for the Jet Propulsion Lab. <laughs> he was a <laughs> rocket scientist. And they found out he was making pickups, and he said, they said, you know, people might lose confidence in you if you're taking all this knowledge to, like, figure out where the rover lander lands at what time of the day and sends back pictures. But you're really in your off time making guitar pickups. We might not. We might lose some confidence in your ability. So he said, fine, I quit. <laughs> and he's another guy. But he's like, he's science. Man. He is deep. I mean, Seymour's science as well. But I've tried a couple of Curtis's and um, he's been very nice to me and he makes, I, I'm not, you know, I would just pick up a guitar and play it. Right. But I got, I got into like swapping out pickups. Basically a lot of it was because of the noise when I was playing on the big shows with Dwight, you know, was having the optimum set up for the instrument for, for uh, no hum and stuff like that. So I started to swap them, but 
uh, I'm just kind of a fan of like what what's the regular sounding pickup. That's yeah. the one. I don't I don't need it. So let, let's talk about uh, getting I guess what you would call an appropriate guitar sound for both live and in the studio because you, you as a producer you know you're very cognizant of the fact that the guitar has to sit in a certain place in the mix and so what i mean what do you think about electric guitar tones and what would you tell like an electric guitar player that came in well of course you'd probably have some session guy if you were hiring someone but but for the guy that doesn't really know, what does he need to think about as far as his guitar sound, as far as fitting in the mix, either live or in the studio? Well, um, I can tell you, I've never hired a session guitarist because I didn't need to. Right. I've worked with lots of young guys and guitarists that are guitarists in their bands or the guitarist of the band. Um, and I try not to play the guitar around them uh, or take the guitar out of their hands. That's demoralizing. Yeah. So I try not to do that. And I try to just be Pete, the producer. So I'm going to be monitoring their sound and their tone, you know, kind of from a distance. I, I know what I would do and I know how I would do it. Um, and basically like, for example, with the, when I recorded with my blackface deluxe, um, it had a middle control. Jim Williams is a, a guy out here that was uh, modifying crazy, crazy modifying stuff, like really brilliant cat. And he turned me on to the middle control. And I don't think we talked about that. No. Last time. But anyway, so the trick was, he said, well, you need to you need to turn up your middle control. And I'm like, there's no middle control on a deluxe. And he goes, yes, there is. It's shorted out on the chassis because a value because um, – Leo didn't want to buy an extra pot and a knob. And that's why there's the Esquires routed out in the front. It's right. a telebody. So Leo was also half marketing, saving money, and, and plus an inventor. So consequently, I was like, really? So, all right. So he said, here, I'll fix your amp. I'm going to take that middle control, and I'm going to put the value on 10. I don't know what the capacitor number or anything is, but I'll put the value on 10. And it'll, and I was like, okay. So I thought that's pretty cool. Now back up a second. The guitar lives in the mid range. The guitar is a saxophone. It competes with the saxophone. It is a mid range instrument. A bass control for a guitar is pretty silly. It doesn't, shouldn't be hitting the bass. You know, if you're playing some all alone in a, you know, a supper club and you need to have a little oomph in the bottom of your jazz guitar or something, I can see it. But as far as like, you know, four-piece rhythm section or five-piece rhythm section, you don't need much bass on the instrument. And you're probably not going to get much help in the bass area from a Fender amplifier right. because of the way Leo designed those amps. So that said, I would have my middle on 10 because it was already shorted out. I'd put the treble on five. I'd put the reverb on two and a half. I would put the bass anywhere from none to maybe two and a half and especially like when i was playing clubs if i was in a corner would be a bass trap right need the bass if i was on a flat stage with no sides i might need more bass i never had the bass up over three 
So the majority of that sound was my live sound. And I would get my live sound. I would adjust the bass. The other numbers were always always pinned. They were where they belong. But I would just hit a chord, hit a note and go, and I would hear the bass. I'd hear the bass touch the note. I'd hear that as I brought up the bass, I could hear when it touched the bottom of the note. And that's about where I would let it lay. Um, when I went in the studio, the middle stayed on 10, but the treble would go down to four and the bass would probably come up to three because I was under the microscope. I wasn't in a bass trap. I had, I had an opportunity to have fidelity, right. let the microphone work a little bit and let the surroundings work a little bit. And that's kind of where I did it that way. And then when I got into a twin, I don't know if we talked about the twin. We did talk about that some okay. in the models so that you had done on that. Yeah, so yeah. Short, we changed the value of the bright switch. Yeah. So it sounded like a big deluxe. Um, but the same thing. I would set all the knobs the same on the twin, just like a deluxe. Five on the treble, you know, maybe three, two and a half on the bass, and middle crank. It's got a middle knob, so I just crank it. Yeah. So in working with somebody... I haven't had an experience where I really had to take apart somebody's sound. A lot of stuff I can do, I can shape it after they go home, you know, or, yeah. you know fix it for them. Um, and so I think, I think taking that into consideration, my main, my main impetus as the producer would be, I want them to be comfortable. I want them to, not be frustrated if it's and especially if it's their first or early times in the studio that can be really shocking yes. really shocking yes and you're standing there playing and three guys are staring at you and maybe your bandmates and they're all like okay dude and you're not very good yeah play a solo yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so that that i try to avoid for the for the player that i want them to be completely comfortable i can really do some magic once they leave, I can fix a lot of stuff with with EQs and and reamping. Uh, my engineer is really big on reamping. He he lives vicariously through the old rock world. <laughs> he's com he's committed to pulling out my amplifiers and reamping stuff. Now it does sound cool, and I'm all about the organic stuff. But I mean, I I, I don't think. Um, I'd have to think, but I did very, very little, if any, reamping on any of the Dwight records. It was either a pod. Well, in the early days, it was a deluxe. Then we used some amps. And then later on, it was Amp Farm. Right. And Amp Farm, I defy anybody, because I did a blindfold test with Amp Farm to tell me which is the deluxe and which is the software program. I defy you. <laughs> I could not tell the difference. So... When you did use the deluxe, like on the first couple records before you got into the twin, uh, did you, you know, what did you mic it with? What was, and, and, and like, did you use compression and other things? Well, the, the engineers would use a limiter usually yeah. in the studio. Um, not like, like Fairchild's are the most popular, but they're, they're dark and heavy. Um, I don't know. They probably use a Yuri or whatever was the, a fast limiter of the day. Um, I would have the reverb, I would have a, the reverb lower than I would usually use it because there wasn't really adequate uh, spring reverbs to, re to add on later. So I wanted the sound of the spring, but then if I wanted more or less reverb, we would use an effect, you know, a rack effect or something. Right. Uh, 
Echoplex, I would use a real Echoplex. And uh, um, microphones, I never mic the back of the cabinet. Uh, I would mic the, if you look at the speaker as a clock, mm-hmm. mic the speaker as a clock, um, off center, 57, doesn't have to be a fancy mic, yeah. 57, maybe, uh, you know, two or three inches off. And then the lower you go with the speaker, the more bass you get. The higher with the microphone, the higher up you get, the brighter it gets. So I might have it a little bit like if you're looking at a clock, I might have it at um, four o'clock instead of three off off diameter, four o'clock. Tap it down around there and get a little oomph out of it. Uh, uh, And I always had great engineers, Dusty Wakeman and Peter Dell and Capitol Studios. They got great sounds. Um, But again, you know, it's uh, if you can't play, it's not going to sound good. No, no, I'm not, I'm not blowing my own smoke. But I was, I was a, a seasoned player by then, right? Yeah. So you were thirty-seven. Was, you were thirty-seven yeah, when I was, first I was, album. I was, I was living in it, you know. So it was for me. It was like this is a great opportunity. Yeah. So I could get the sound that I needed, and and it was the other thing that was a big plus for me was getting off headphones. So I never really, except when I was. Before I was really producing, I would sit on the floor with headphones on. But once I started producing, I would sit in the studio and plug into uh, a rock man, later on a pod, any kind of little device like that, anything except for, a stair- uh, for direct, and sit behind the board because I'm listening to everything. And I wanted to get everybody – I couldn't get the drummer, but I wanted to get everybody off headphones as soon as possible so even when we were done tracking and the bass and the drums were all done i'd bring the bass player in and he would always play direct and so he would play direct and sit behind the board and play bass and then whether it was keyboards you know unless it was a real piano the piano player would be in this control room all the music was being put down in the control room as we replaced their scratch tracks and the same thing with my guitar so i a lot of like capital actually had um had a little hole in the wall so I could run the cable through the through the wall so you didn't want to have to redirect the uh, the signal mm-hmm. and I, just, I used a Goodrich volume pedal that had that had was a low Z pedal so I could have some length of cable so it didn't it didn't cut the highs so I would have my volume pedal and I'd have like a 10 foot or or five or ten foot cable right here behind the board and then run the other cable out to the floor which would be just the other side of the wall and being mic'd and shot out into the room and um i would record like that and and just you know place it into the speakers as i was playing and put it on the big speakers you know play it play it kind of band volume yeah so so you know because what you're describing is you know and again and i've read this in some of the the interviews that you've done where you know you you were trying to get the drums first and then of course immediately like you said you're wanting to get everyone off the headphones and then you're recording kind of piecemeal. So what was the advantage to you? Why did you want to, you know, because of course other producers would have said, oh no, I want to have all the band playing at the same time. What was it about your your records that you wanted to have the drums and then you have the, the bass player replace his part and, 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 and again, and also the headphone thing where he's like, I, I don't want them on headphones. I want them to hear the big speakers in the control room. So tell us about that. Well, um, we all played together, yeah. right? But I was only interested in, I, I was not mic'd and set up to keep anything but the drums. So the drums were first. And 
most times are not except for a fiddle, acoustic guitar, or mandolin. They're the only acoustic thing on the record. So I wanted to get that done. And then once that was done, I could have more input. I could, I would, when I'm tracking with a band, I'm only thinking about the groove. First of all, I got to agree that the key is right. That's the un- most important. Then I got to agree that the tempo is right. I can't worry about what the bass player is playing. I can't worry about what right. people players play. Now, these guys are guys that have worked with me. So as it got, we did more and more records. They knew what I wanted, and it was fine. And I probably could have set a lot of different things up and gotten what I wanted right then and there. But the other thing is, is I didn't want to stop to fix things and change things on something else besides the drums. Because the other thing was, I would get, I, I would get my drums... I don't. I I can't remember. Maybe spending three days. Maybe because I had a drummer that wasn't that good. But I'd get my drums in two days. Like they were done for the whole record. So I didn't want everybody getting beat up. Yeah. You know, and just go. Oh, because I remember doing demos back in the day, right? Oh, and yeah. I had a little group, me and my buddies, Gary Morris and me and a, uh, my friend John John Lee White on drums and Peter Freiberger, and we would do these little demos. And I remember like being in these demo studios and I, and I was as old or maybe a little bit older than every guy, the three guys, my buddies were all the same age close, but I would say, Hey, don't fuck up. I don't want to play this song again. I yeah. want to play it once. I don't like it. It sucks. It's junk. Let's get this right and get, move on to the next song. So don't goof around. Yeah. And they'd look at me and I go, yeah, come on. And so you learn to stick to the page. Yeah. You're like, man, you learn to concentrate. You're like, you're drilled in, man. You, and you got your notes, you know, your repeat signs. And, and if somebody added something or did something, you'd make a note. So you wanted to go. It's like, I'm good. Are you good? I'm good. You're good. Okay, great. Next song. Whatever. Yeah. Cause so, you're getting paid probably by the song anyway. Yeah. Demos. And, and, yeah. But even, even not so much the pay for me, it was just, uh, it was spiritual because it wasn't good music. Yeah. It was hard. You know, yeah. I didn't like playing clubs. With, I didn't care about the money in clubs. I cared about whether the drummer was any good. Four sets can be can be two weeks with a bad drummer, right? Yes. Yes. So it wasn't about the money. It, it really hurt me spiritually to play bad. It yeah. really hurt me. I and, I had a hard time with it. And it's you know it's easy to play good songs, and bad yep. songs are so hard to play. And you're right. You just want to get through them. Yep. So now. I, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, the reason that you wanted to do things piecemeal was so that you could just concentrate on the drums, just concentrate on the bass, just con- so you could have, instead of, you know, having this, you know, this room full of players that you're, you're trying to micromanage these guys. It's like, okay, we're just going to do the drums. And then it's like, I'm just going to have the bass player in the control room and we're going to have a, a nice, you know, plus that makes it a, a nicer, uh, you know, kind of atmosphere yeah. where you don't have everybody watching you. Plus, you know, I, I mean, we talked about this before about, you know, dealing with Pete Anderson for 20 years, right? So I think that <laughs> I had a little bit of like, I'm responsible for every note of music to the artist that I work for. Every kick drum hit, not just a bar, every kick drum hit, every bass note, I would scrutinize every note of music. So it gave me the opportunity to scrutinize the part because I wasn't paying attention to that part through rehearsal and through tracking because initial tracking, because all I cared about was the drums and I would cast the drums 
the snare drums and the sound of the drums a little bit prior to, but actually while we were playing, I would be swapped the snare drum. The snare drums had a purpose. Right. So if you were you're doing a ballad, you needed a metal snare drum for side stick because that read better. You, you needed uh, you're doing brushes, you needed an ambassador head with the kind of crystally stuff on top so it scratches. You want a you, you want a piccolo snare to rock it. It sounds like a gunshot. You want a deep snare for a ballad. So you're changing the snare by the songs. So that was all I was concerned with was getting that right with the tempo. And I would listen to the singer, um, you know, because things do change a little bit when you get into the studio. So making sure they were always comfortable getting all the words out in the fashion they wanted to, to the tempo of the song. So once then it would be the bass. Okay. So in the case of the bass, do I want flat wounds? Do I want round wounds? Most of the time I would be consistent with one bass. Sometimes it'd be like, you know, you need flat wounds with a pick. You need round wounds with a pick. Um, are we going to double this with a, with a click bass? Um, any number of things that I'm not going to stop the session while I'm dealing with snare drums to then deal with the bass player, then stop everybody while I listen to the bass to make sure it's locked to the kick. Right. You're wasting time. Right. So in, in reality, you know what I'm doing? I'm making everybody tired. Yeah. Because we'd go in there hot, man. We'd be like, let's cut this. And it'd be like, one take, two takes, boom, we got it, nailed it. And I mean nailed it was back in the analog days. It would be like, I'd say when I would, I'd say, ask the drummer, how do you feel? How did you feel about it? I felt good, blah, blah, Okay, me and him feel good. I might take some input from somebody else, but more times it's me and the drummer. I'd say, all right, come on in. I'd shut everything off and just listen to the drums to the click. Listen to the click track and the drums. Click. <laughs> the whole song, every beat, make some numbers. We got to punch this. We got now we fly it and cut it. But back then it was like punch it at 220, punch it 222. You know, we go back out and punch drums to get it right. And in the fact that my producer career got off to a pretty hot start because the unofficial first thing I produced, which I produced other little duff stuff around that wasn't attached to a big label, was a gold record. Now I was in high cotton and I had a lot of competition and I was in LA where the competition is at the top. Yes. Okay. Nashville had a way of being a factory and they made great sounding. I don't like the sound. I don't like the sound of the records, but they're great sounding records. And all those guys were really great technicians and the studio musicians were great. But LA was the cutting edge. It was like London. It was cutting edge, the coolest, newest ever, whoever, Budgets were crazy. You know, people would spend $350,000. You know, Eagles would spend a week getting a kick drum sound. So I always looked at those, that group, because I lived in this environment, as the competition for Dwight. Yes. I didn't know about the competition in Nashville. I didn't, I didn't listen to the records and dissect them from that perspective, right? I would hear them on the radio, and that was it for the most part. I was, I was in competition with John Cougar with Bruce Springsteen with the Eagles. I was in competition with the way those records were made. And those records were made every time they made a record that was the latest, greatest, cutting edge, best best mixer, best mastering guy, best cartridge, best, you know, yeah. it was the best of the best in the world. It was on the cutting edge here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Los Angeles, like it or not, is the media capital of the English-speaking world. If you were here and we went to go get a taco in Burbank, we'd see like 10 little brick buildings. And I go, you know, they're they're doing uh, uh, the new Disney movies right in there. They're dubbing it right now. Over here, they're doing uh, some Jim Cameron spice, space age movie. It's all right here if it's right. in English. So 
that all trickles down. All the gear trickles down. So um, that's the, that was the competition for Dwight that I felt. And I realized that as I would work, I would make a record, and then I'd come back, and it was like I'd work with engineers. While I was on the road, they were doing another eight months, and they go, oh, you got to use the new Sprinky Spronky box, and this happened, and that guy did this and flipped the tape over. And I'm like, what? Show me that. I wanted to know. Whether I used it all or not, I wanted to know what it was because I felt an obligation um, to the artist. So let's um, – you were talking about you know the drums – and then you know, and then you you're doing bass and stuff. So so let's talk about putting yourself as the guitar player under the microscope. So how would you think about uh, casting parts when it came to your guitar playing? Um, well, some of it would would be drifting around during the rehearsal, like a five day rehearsal. I would have some ideas, uh, and then I was pretty good at like shutting up and listening to the track where let's say we've had we've had fixed instrument day a fixed pitch so all the piano's done all the bass is done all the drums are done um let's for lack of an argument we could say the acoustics are done whatever so it's guitar time so it's today's guitar day or guitar week or whatever so i'd get you know everything set up the way i told you and i'd be comfortable and then places where you know the rhythm parts i would sort of know what i needed to do rhythmically so i would start and I sort of called it guitar and a half. So I would play the rhythm. I tried not to play rhythm and then play lead over the rhythm. I wanted to, I wanted to sound like one guitar part, mm-hmm. but I called it guitar and a half because I would, I would play rhythm first. So I'd get the rhythm groove the way I wanted through the whole song. Then I'd go back and in the appropriate places that needed an intro, a turnaround, a solo, an outro, I would take out the rhythm guitar or have it on really low and take it out later. I didn't rely on it because I wanted to play to the, the, the rhythm section, but without a guitar, because that's the way it would be live. Right. Um, so I would usually listen, you know, just play the track. And I've heard it. I would have heard it a number of times, but but I, I would play the track and not not finger my instrument and not doodle around. When you see somebody doing that, they're not listening to the track. So they're thinking, I'm going to play my preconceived cool lick that I worked out in my bedroom. Right. Right? And it's like, there's no freedom in that. That's like a painter going in and deciding, you know, I'm going to paint, you know, square strokes uh, over this canvas. You you have to put some color to it and then see what it, let it talk to you. So I would not say anything. I would just let the music play. And 95% of the time, I don't ever think, I can't remember getting stuck, let me put it that way. I mean, getting stuck in that, I have no idea what to play. I always had an idea what to play, but music would come to me in my head, and I would hear something in my head, thematic or something, as the song was playing where I needed to play, and it would be an inspiration for me. I might not play that, but that would start it. That would be the the little piece of sand that went in the, in the start of the pearl, right? It would be like, Oh, okay. And I've had a few uh, situations like that where in the middle of playing something, I would come up with an idea while I was playing it and it would, and a, and a thought would come to me and I turn around and play. Like I, I, I should dig out the name of the song, but I can't remember the name of the song. It wasn't a difficult thing, but I was playing this solo on a Dwight song. 
And I don't, it might have been this time, this time's the last time. I can't remember the song. It wasn't an up, revved up thing. So I'm playing Pete Anderson on the front half. And uh, it was me and, and Dusty Wakeman and Peter Dell. And so I'm playing. And I got to the five chord and I was like a five chord back down to the one. And I was just, and I started playing for the first time. It was like, started sounding stock, like, Oh man. And, and I played and I played, got a couple of radical things, you know, nothing too, too big. And, and then I think, you know, Dusty was like, that's it. That's really great. And it's like, and Peter Dell, what do you think? That's great. And I was like, if you guys, both you guys like this, I don't think it's good. I, I think you want me to stop. I, I think you're going to smoke. So Dwight came in, right, in the studio. And the cool thing, the one cool thing when he was younger, I guess, or he may still be that way, I'm not sure, but he was a radical, you know. He was like, fuck yeah. It's like, you can play, he's, you play more radical shit than that. I've heard you play crazy. He wanted it was no like that's too much for me. Yeah. That never entered into it. It was like no, go for it, and we'd laugh. We we if I hit one, we both he'd be like we'd be both rolling on the floor because it was it was so whack. So when he came in and I said, "What do you think of this?" and he goes, "Oh no, man, you got something better." It's like, and it didn't have to be revved up. So anyway, what happened was is I'm sitting there playing and I get to the five chord and. And I play, and, and as I got to the five chord, this thought in my head went, Buck's polka. And Buck's polka is da da dee dee da da dee dee da da dee 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 da dee dee da dee 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 And I went, Buck's polka. And I went, and I can't play without a pick, but I started doing that. And I started playing Buck's polka, and it came into my head like maybe a quarter note before I needed to play it. And I played it all the way down, and, and he started laughing and rolling on the couch. I went, that's it. I had one note I had to fix, and it was like – and they were like, okay, you sure? And so I think, you know, Dwight understood because we had played so much music together, right? The other guys were kind of more square ball about it, you know? They were like into like the hip sessions more – and not necessarily safe, but I guess safe, you know, great tone, great sound, great everything, but – Nothing really dangerous, right? Nothing yeah. like I never heard that before. You know, it'd be like listening to Amos Garrett play Midnight at the Oasis. You go, "What are you doing?" Yeah, and you know, somebody that's that's gonna wear a scarf and 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 you know, being be be an artist is gonna say that's amazing, and somebody else with a little suit on is gonna go, "I don't know about that. That sounds like a Hawaiian guitar." Right? Are you sure, you want to do that? You know, yeah. and that's like one of the greatest solos ever. It, it it absolutely is, and and you hit upon you know, something about your playing. Your playing always had, you know, kind of a, a a going for it, and also a sense of humor, and you know, and and uh, you know, and you'd hurt, you know, because you would play like some some wild, you know, crazy things. I mean, like like the intro to Please Please Baby, or the uh, or the the solo on that, or. Uh, or like the 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 cool intro on a, I got you, you know that, uh, you know, or or even just the way you played uh, rhythm parts, almost like a like a a rhythm and blues country player, you know, where you know you weren't playing like the way James Burton or Albert Lee would have played rhythm even on a tune. Yeah, I I, I think um, I I never looked. I don't think Albert's. 
I mean, Albert's a great guitar player, but you know, you'd really have to dig to listen to him as a rhythm player. Yeah. Because he's featured. And the, and the sort of this, Burton had that plucky thing that was kind of cool for his rhythm playing. But I did a study of rhythm guitar way early in the early, before I ever, when I was in a band in the R in, in an R and B band that I had, I don't know if I ever, if I told you that, but I had that band in Ventura County where we played 11 nights on and three nights off. We talked about that. No, no, you didn't mention that. Really? <laughs> yeah, 11 nights on and three nights off. That's crazy. Yeah. That's great. Uh, well, anyway, so this is the rhythm guitar story. So um, I I got, I thought we talked about this. I, I The first really good gig I got was I studied at GIT. It was called GIT at the time. And um, we didn't talk about this, right? No, we didn't talk about this. All right. You got a good memory. I trust you. Yeah. So, so there was a guy in town that was a booking agent. He booked clubs and he heard me play somewhere. And he, Bud Reagan was, is his name. He befriended me. And he goes, there's this really good country band. And I was sleeping on the floor, you know, duffing, playing VFWs, whatever I could get. Just got out of music school. He said, there's this really good country band. Their guitar player is leaving. They need a guitar player. And they were like a cut above yeah. the club. So you you did you did talk about this, but you didn't talk about rhythm playing. Oh, okay. Well, when I got the when I told you the guy with the steel licks, yeah, Peter, yeah. Okay, all right. That band. So that band, I played eleven nights on, three off. Okay. And I got in that band, and the drummer was Pete Gavin from Head, Hands, and Feet. Yes. yes. We talked. About we that. talked so, about that. Yes. So. The bass player is Rolly Sally from Chris Isaac and myself. And for whatever reason, the leader of the band, I think, I think I, <laughs> I probably have, should have been a, 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 a forerunner, but I think I made him feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm not sure. I never, I never would do that to anybody on purpose, but I might have. Anyway, he fired me. Hmm. And it wasn't because I couldn't play, because we were killing it. And, and, uh, he, he, I guess I made him feel uncomfortable and I didn't mean to. And we remained somewhat friends through the years. But anyway, he said, he said, I got to let you go. And he fired Roly because Roly was my good buddy. So he wanted to change the, the friendship structure in the band. Yeah. You know, like if there's five guys in the band and two of them are good buddies, maybe that the, it's like the Supreme court, you know, overrule. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he fired me and Roly and he said, I'm not going to play down at that club in Santa Monica Sunday, Monday, Tuesday anymore. So if you want that gig, you can have it. And you guys can go play blues or whatever you want to play. So we jumped all over it, me and Roly. We begged the guy in the club to let us play. He said, okay. And it was a prestigious club at the time. It was, it was a nice, it was always packed. So we had a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So that, that band, uh, we didn't even have a band. We had a week. We got a sax player named Steve Allen. We found him in a local newspaper, like a freebie newspaper. Um, keyboard player was a friend of a friend, John Heron, and Rolly on bass. And the first drummer was a good friend of Rolly and mine's named Don Heffington, who's played with a ton of people. Yeah. But he didn't want to be in a band. We we're like, we're going to have this band, man. And we're going to play every Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, man, blah, 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 blah. And we want to make it a band. And some of these guys are like, I'm not going to be in a band, man. You know, I'm a session guy or whatever. Didn't want to do it. Anyway, that band ended up 
being, I ended up playing with Jim Gordon in that band. Really? Yeah. yeah. Gordon. He was the drummer <laughs> for a while. And that was an amazing experience. So he ended up being the drummer. But that said, now I was sort of exposed because I was always playing with an acoustic guitar player. So I was the lead guy. I was like, you know, I didn't use pedals, but I was like, I wasn't, I didn't have to carry the rhythm. I played a lot of fills. Right. So it, it really, they started kind of bagging on me and say, you got to play rhythm, man. And I'm like, I think I'm playing rhythm. And it, I wasn't right. So I, oddly enough, we talk about Amos Garrett. I got this Amos Garrett Starlicks five cassette tape on rhythm playing from <laughs> Amos Garrett. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I think of him as Midnight at the Oasis, but maybe there's something in there. So he had sort of cut, broke down a bunch of little rhythm patterns on guitar that I wasn't aware of. And I started practicing them. And so I started playing more rhythm <coughs> in between my solos because we had a sax and a piano in the band. So I wasn't playing all the solos. So that's when I really started to do a study of rhythm guitar. And I found that I would get more recommendations for sessions or other types of work from drummers because I played rhythm and they said they would say to me you make my snare sound loud because I'd play on the backbeat I like playing with you you play rhythm I like playing with you you make my snare drum sound loud I want to get you on this session I want to get you and it was like and I sort of took a it's a secret pride because it's not like the crowd's not going yeah play your great rhythm player you know yeah. they're, they're freaking out for your solos so it was it was then that I started a study of rhythm, especially like listening to like <clears throat> what Steve Cropper was doing behind Albert King on Born Under a Bad Sign. All the Motown stuff was all rhythm guitar because the bass was so active. It was that was funk music was active bass rhythm guitar. Right. Blues, blues and country is simple bass active guitar. So I started listening to to what they were doing and then taking into consideration my knowledge that I'd learned of, of, uh, of music from MI. And that just kept blossoming and blossoming and blossoming. And now, um, I think my, my, one of my favorite things to do besides playing bass is playing rhythm. I can really shape a song and have a concept behind, there's a concept to playing rhythm as well. Right. So, um, I, I, I use that a lot. I, I use it in my band, in my organ trio, I don't stop playing. I don't do, you know, like B.B. King. He always had a rhythm guitar player, but I don't stop playing. Yeah. Keyboard soloing, I'm contributing. And I'm listening to him and, and doing, taking stuff where helping him go where he wants to go. So show us how you formulated like your rhythm guitar style, like in the context of Dwight's music. So, you know, because in, of course in that band, especially the original band, you've got you know, you've got Dwight on acoustic, but then you've got bass, you know, bass drums and fiddle. So it was you, a trio, you, really. Yeah, you had to play a lot. Yeah, he didn't play. Dwight wasn't. Dwight was capable, but he was he was like putting on a show and doing the twist and jumping around and you know entertaining. Right. So the, it was hard to get the acoustic to be a contributing factor. So in the case of Dwight, um, or in the case of let's call it country country rhythm playing, um, I would play with. I would play with a pick. I don't play with a pick anymore, but I would do hybrid picking. Mm -hmm. So I was I was always like 
like a piano player. Right. So I was pulling up and I would like I could get a great shuffle going. thing you had to do was relax it because it had a tendency to want to feel ahead so you have to feel very lazy and swing it instead of stiff it's got to be it's got to swing yeah the volume increases and decreases get it to swing and then you can do of I guess what you know what people would kind of think of as as you know uh, R&B rhythm guitar stuff where you're kind of bouncing with your left hand right yeah right. to give it to where it has the more of a not completely staccato but where you're 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 cutting off the notes yeah, yeah. and it's like it's like a piano player like kind of kind of like yeah. like when a player's playing a two-handed shuffle and once I drop the pick now I have five notes when I had the pick, I had four notes. Right. I have five notes that I can do things to within that complex chord. So if I'm playing jazz or, or R&B, I've got all those. Got those notes in there. I can do all kinds of stuff like horn parts. So and and then as far as your uh, your your lead playing and your so yeah yeah so of course in the band you're you're covering that you know that rhythm part and you're really you know integral and then and then you did you hate it when you soloed and and the rhythm you know the rhythm guitar dropped out when you're playing live. Well, in the initial, what we would call a trio with Dwight. Yeah. Um, it was. Playing on once, I mean, we got successful once the record came out, and we played on all different types of stages under all different types of circumstances. And we, our ability to hear ourselves and mix ourselves on stage was totally evolving. So, for quite a couple of years, maybe even three years, I could only hear the drums. The bass and everything was on the other side of the stage. Dwight's acoustic was so loud. And it was sort of like jangly. So I would just, there was a few times where I had to get a visual on the snare drum. Wow. I had to see it. Yeah. But with backbeat to play to it. So it was a bit of a war. So there's a, you know, there's like a good side and a bad side. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a positive side to your wish. And then there's always, you know, a negative side could be a negative side to your wish. It's like, you know, I want to go around the world and play guitar and have everybody like my guitar playing. And it's like, okay, your wish is granted. But at the same time, I'm going to have a guy with a garden hose and a, and a super high powered fan stand in front of you and blow water on your face. You're like, uh, <laughs> and I try it a little bit. Uh, uh, I, I don't, will that work? So it was a war. It was a war. So my, again, 
we talked about it, but my parts were worked out, except yeah. for my solos. I never wanted to work out my solos. Yeah. So my parts were worked out. So I I was I was uh, uh, just steadfast, like, I, I don't know what you guys are doing, but I'm playing my song and I'm in time with the drums. Yeah. You know, that's what it is. Yeah. As it grew, it got better. Yeah. Because on in-ears and stuff. When uh, in your solos, uh, because you, you always had one, you kind of you had your own sound. And, and, you know, as soon as you played a solo, you know, you knew it was you. It didn't sound like anybody else. You know, what uh, where did that come from? You know, what you know, how how did you decide, you know, I'm oh, I guess part of it is, you know, you have inspirations. But but how did you when you're recording? I mean, were you just listening and thinking, OK, this doesn't this sounds like me. Uh, that started to happen. Uh, there was a couple of conscious efforts that I made uh, uh, or conscious decisions that I made. Um, when Albert Lee hit the scene, it was like uh, nobody could play like, where did that come from? Right. I'll never even get close to that. So there was a conscious decision. Um, as When we got to the Dwight era, uh, when I, even on Guitars Cadillacs, I could place my version of Albert Lee to some degree, but I decided that – Everyone was trying to play their version of Albert Lee. Right. Well, you know, Ben Skill had just kind of hit. He was pick, picking that style. Yeah. A couple of cats were picking that style. I like the Burton style, um, but I had done a lot of steel licks, which none of those guys had done. Right. Burton out. None of them. Maybe Ray Flack a little bit. I loved Ray Flack's playing, but I was playing like trying to sound like a steel guitar. And when I sort of quit using the volume pedal, but still retaining the licks is became an arsenal. I mean, a, a, a card in my deck of like, I can use this. And I remember when honky tonk, the, the ironic thing about honky tonk man was that the first single came out, Dwight played the solo on yeah. acoustic guitar. Right. And I, he had never played a solo in all the fucking times we'd played ever. And it worked, it was cool and everything. And I was there to there, you know, I was playing the, the, the low stuff. Um, but I, and, and so I was like, uh, and I was like, okay. And I was like, I don't, you know, this is the way we did the song. So I wasn't, didn't want to compromise the song so I could play a solo. I figured I'm going to have plenty of chances to play solos. It's not going to be that. But when I play them, what am I going to do? Am I going to try to copy Albert Lee? Or am I going to try to copy Vince Gill? Am I going to try to copy, you know, James Burton? And I drew really on the older stuff and like Guitars Cadillacs was the licks the initial stuff was low string licks, which none of those guys were doing. Right. That was really more Don Rich. Yes. Don Rich wasn't really on my radar. I mean, I knew him, but I hadn't sat down because I those records were out of print. It was hard to get those records because um, Buck owned his masters, so right. nobody was issuing the records. So I, like, you know, that stuff is like I just made up the intro that worked with the and I wasn't even that experienced with low 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 string licks at that time but I just made up what was the intro if it was on a low string I was that was new to me and then this was when it came into steel licks that was I was doing that in my sleep yeah that part was like I'm going to be Pete Anderson yeah. Nobody, I don't hear anybody doing this. So when I did that without a volume pedal, so it was it sounded steel, but 
not, I mean, I sounded like a steel guitar when with, I did it. With the Two volume pedal. Reverb, you know, volume pedal, shimmers and everything. And when I did it with just that, like picking it was like, whoa, what's that? I think I didn't, to me, it was me. But I think to everybody else was like, I don't think that, I don't know if that's ever been on record before. Anybody doing that? You might know more than I. No, I, I you know, that, 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 it wasn't like I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. To, I'm going to do Cornell Dupree here, right? You know, because he never did that. A little yeah. bit. I mean, everybody did six, yeah, but they didn't bend them like that, right? Sure. The only guy that bend them was Peter Climes, who had the gig before me with Rick Tucker. <laughs> well, show show us some more Pete Anderson, you know, steel guitar licks that uh, that you you know that are kind of. Um, the single strings, which so you're seven major seven to one. Can, can you lift up the guitar a little bit more so maybe we can see a little bit of the neck? Hold it up, yeah. So those so half-step bends. And and so I'm playing. So you can just find them everywhere, you know, just if you look for them. So it's. Three, three, four, three, four, one. Yeah. And the thing about the steel guitar is the steel, although you can make it romantic, the steel is. Yes. A pedal. That's, you can you can pick them, you can bounce them. Yeah. I also wanted to one one part that you know while listening to to Dwight stuff and listening to Please Please Baby, I. I really loved the, uh, it was almost like a horn part that you and the fiddle played where it was like the dun, 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 dun. We used to do that in another song, like Rocky Road Blues or something. And when he wrote the, when he wrote Please, Please, Baby, um, it was at a different tempo. I think it was, uh, I think it was... I think we were at a different tempo initially and then we got it back down to where we recorded it and we and and Brantley and I used to go yeah so that was fiddle and guitar used to do that so we just said hey let's do I when we yeah. heard the song I drug it over and said hey let's put that old horn part uh on this song yeah please maybe it's yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a great, you know, kind of R and B horn part on a country song. Yeah, yeah. Would you play that intro again and and kind of in the center of the screen so so we can see your hands? Um. Yeah. Um, 
country bands like the other thing about that like here's the country band here's the blues band it's the minor third but when you go that's the country band that's the Cadillac one yep that's honky tonk well you had mentioned uh you know you know kind of the Telecaster thing and embracing those players. And of course you mentioned like Amos Garrett and I'm guessing like Jesse Ed Davis and, you know, Robbie Robertson and, you know, you know, I, so yeah. Cause Jesse Ed was one of the, you know, the, the telly guys. And of course he, he kind of, it sounded like he was using more of the neck pickup at times, but, but he, he was the first guy. He was the catalyst because he was doing which is the first country band anybody learns on the guitar. Like if we're in the key of A and you're bending. Everyone knows that one. Right. And then there's the B string puller one for honky tonk women. But that was with a B string puller. Yeah. But Jesse Ed was this one. When I heard that, I was like, man, what is he doing? That started it. Yeah. That was the first guy I ever heard on guitar for me that was like, that's like a steel guitar sound. We didn't even have, I didn't even know anybody with a steel guitar. Yeah. You know, when we were 21, 22 years old, it was rare. They were expensive. So Jesse started it for me, and then it just progressed from there. But I mean, if you, if you think about um, the early the the Burrito Brothers, they had a steel. They didn't even have an electric lead player. Right. And, um, then when Graham did his solo records with with Burton, Burton didn't play those type of licks. He was uh, you know playing. He had a he had a a flat pick and a finger pick played with a metal finger pick and he had that bluesy chicken picking and bluesy picking going on. Yeah. So he was the next guy was, you know, it was like when I was trying to figure out how do I play country guitar? How do I do it? How, how do I get into this? Cause everything was blues to me. And, uh, from Jesse Ed Burton, you know, Albert was off the table. Cause it was like, I, I can't, I don't, I mean, I can't do that. Right. That's a serious commitment to something. And I always noticed on Emmy's records that whenever it wasn't a train beat or an up-tempo beat, Albert played piano and she brought Burton in to play guitar. (laughs) And when it was a revved up thing, Albert would kill it. You know, he'd come in and play. So it's kind of of interesting, interesting to me. Yeah. I love Burton's playing. I love his playing. It's, it's, It's funny, you know, I was... You know, I saw some reproduction of a Elvis, you know, uh, poster and, you know, from when he first started playing in Vegas and, you know, 68, 69. And it's got, you know, of course, Elvis Presley and then it's got, you know, the, you know, the sweet inspirations. And then it's got blues guitarist James Burton. <laughs> and I just thought that was interesting in that, you know, because I think we tend to think of him as a country player, but it's like. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, Shreveport, Louisiana. He was listening to Lightning Hopkins and uh, Susie Q. That's a that's a blues lick. I mean, it's like, and a lot of the stuff he played on the Haggard stuff. It's 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 really, you know, it's it's 
you know, kind of white blues. So yeah, he comes from a, you know, he's from Shreveport and it comes from a bluesy perspective. It's that hybrid. It's yeah. this it's a hybrid on a Telecaster, like, like Scotty was with Elvis, you know, I mean, those guys were, they were bridging the gap between bluegrass, bluegrass country and blues. And they were right in the middle because Elvis was bluesy as hell. Yeah. Right. But it was still white man blues. I don't mean that as a negative. He yeah. created new. He created a new, a new genre. He created it because yeah. Little Richard came from the church. Yes. Chuck Berry was a poet. Elvis didn't write. Chuck Berry was was American poetry. You know, I I don't, I don't want to say he was the Bruce Springsteen of his day because he surpasses that as far as his songs. But he was the he was the poet laureate of American teenagers. So you take those three guys, Elvis was the blues guy. He was Arthur Big Boy Crudup. He was coming from the deep, deep blues stuff, but they played it their way because they were, you know, like the Burnett brothers. Yeah. You know, they were country guys, but they were all jacked up, like turning like, the amps up. Yeah. My mom let's, let's go to the garage and turn the amps up. Yeah, let's fuzz it up some. Yeah. Let's pull that power tube out, that Chet Atkins trick, and get yeah. the distortion. <laughs> they were young guys revved up. Yeah. So name a couple of uh, albums or tracks that still get you excited to this day that you can you can put on that record and it just it 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 gets you excited. Like it, just the energy and the musicality of it. Uh, let's see. I've got a lot of favorites. They'd probably be odd, but um lay it on us. <laughs> well, uh that well, that I guess I would say that the music sends me like music used to send me when I was a kid. It wouldn't take much when I was younger to hear a certain thing, you know, and get a special, you know, hear Little Walter or hear Muddy Waters and and just get a kind of out of body experience, like cheese, um, because it just was so rhythmic and so real, you know, like. Uh, sexual or sensual not sexual but sensual it was it was the human condition but um i'm I li i've listened a lot to chet baker sings chet baker singing um and playing but specifically his singing because his phrasing is unbelievable his vocal phrasing um, and he and he sang kind of like he played the trumpet um and then there's a reprise record I forget the name of it, but it's kind of, and it's not a greatest hits, but it's Frank Sinatra on reprise. And I, and going on the road for like 10 years, I, I listened to that record over and, and it's fly me to the moon and just all his great standards. And I realized that it was seeping into my guitar playing in that Frank invented that style. The, they called it like the barroom singer, the saloon singer. There was others that came before him, but, once he hit, you know, he was the Elvis Presley of his era or whatever you want to call it. And his way of being this Italian guy with a voice, swinging, singing, singing and swinging vocally, he invented it. Everyone else follows behind Frank. Everyone. There might be better vocalists, better pitch, this, that, but not with the phrasing. And so phrasing as I got older became much more important. And I listened to that record so much that it started to really seep into my, into my guitar playing. 
and I was started playing swinging chords like the horn section was swinging in his records and trying to emulate, I guess, because I was really working on my singing, but trying to sing late like he sings late on the not singing on the beat. Right. And it creates a swing. So those records still like if I put the Frank on, I could listen to the whole record, you know, nonstop. And I, I just love the musicality. I love the harmony and the, the, the chords and the, and the horns that are playing and just everything about it. Um, recently, uh, I watched a documentary about Nina Simone. Yes. And I always looked at Nina Simone. I wasn't a, an authority on jazz vocalists or female jazz vocalists, but, you know, I always had her under Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald, you know, that host of, you know, women um, that were jazz singers. And I saw this documentary and I didn't realize what a great piano player she was. Mm-hmm. She studied to be a classical piano player and her wish was to play Carnegie Hall, to be the black, first black woman to play Carnegie Hall, give a co- classical concert at Carnegie Hall. Well, she didn't do that, but she did play Carnegie Hall as Nina Simone, the blues jazz singer. She didn't do it as the classical. But her phrasing, how she can play, and like, if she never even sang a note, she'd be like the killing his cat on the bandstand, right? She'd be like grooving so hard with the band. And then sing on top of it and sing late, and mess with the mess with the lyrics, I, I I don't I don't know how she does it. It's it's brilliant. It's genius. And she was a genius. So that is super inspirational to see see that and try to like get a piece of it. You know, yeah. let a little rub off. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get just a touch? Yeah. And, uh, and and it enters your brain, you know, it enters your brain in the back. So, And I love Wes Montgomery. I still listen to Wes all the time. Um, Favorite I always, album? Uh, all of them. Okay. All of them. Um, the ones with his brothers, the master sound or something, they're difficult because they were mastered poorly. So you got to turn it down when the saxophone comes on and then turn it up when the guitar comes up because they're not mastered, mixed right properly. But <clears throat> I'm very, I can't remember. I, uh, I might have heard something, but I, he's never been bad. He's never been even close to bad. Yeah. And, and then on top of it, he invented it. Yeah. Another guy that went, I never heard anybody do that. You know, that's why I give a lot of credit to Stevie Ray Vaughan, because that, you cannot do that. You go, that's Stevie Ray Vaughan. So if you get, if you did something that powerful, that well, and you made a mark with it, you know, you, you need big credit for that. Yeah. Which is what he did. But um, Wes never lets you down um, musically. He never plays over your head. Uh, his tone's always great. His composition Composition to solos is what I'm paying a lot more attention to these days. It's very difficult um, because you you know you guitar players are are jitterbugs. You know <laughs> they want to like spew out a bunch of stuff, and and it's always like less is more, less is more. A friend of mine, Coco Montoya, is a blues guitar player. He's yes. been around John Mayall and others. Yeah. So he was uh, he was a he was um, Albert Collins's drummer before he became Coco Montoya, the blues guitar player. He played drums and he played for Albert Collins. And he told me a story once. He said they were doing a bunch of shows with Albert King. 
So they would open up and then Albert King would go out there and play. And so he got to see Albert King from the wings quite a few times playing back in the day. And he said he was sitting down with him once and he called him Bert. And he said, Bert, he said, he said, man, how do you do it? He said, you know, you go out there every night and you just play these solos and you just you're just burying it. You're just, how do you do it night after night? And he said, he said, he said, Albert King said to him, Coco, I play every other note I think of. <laughs> but it's true. Yes, he's editing. We tried it one night. I was at my little my my gig, the Peter Anderson gig, and I was that was stuck in my head. Play every other note you think of, and I was like, and I did it. Somebody did a camera phone on me one, and I a couple days later I saw it, and I went, "Damn, that works!" But I got to stay with it, you know, and you have to figure out how to apply it. So you know how Miles could play and have a note just explode yes what would be so valuable i mean it's 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 inner space instead of outer space right it's like trying to find the right note at the right time the right tone and the right place in the bar line because the big the big parts of the bar line you know the quarter notes inside of a bar are just suggestions (laughs) you know they can say this is a this is a this is the beat one, beat two, but it's like, yeah, but maybe I want beat two to really be, you know, a 30 second behind, you know, beat 30 second, beat one and thir- one, one and 31, 30 seconds. So it's, it's indefinable. That's where the painting comes in. That's where the creativity comes in. And so learning to, learning to know that that exists and then, and then learning to control it. Yeah. Really, really difficult. Okay, so we're we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up with this. So, okay. you know, because we've we've gone an hour and a half again. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I, w- I want you to list, you know, some of the recordings that you've done that you're most proud of. Oh, uh, that I've done. Yeah. Um, my records or any records that I've produced. Any that you've done. Okay. That you mean that I've that I've produced or played on? Produced or played on? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, really, really proud of um, the Meat Puppets record. Yeah. I'm also proud of the solo record I did with Kirk Kirkwood, called Snow. Um, working with him, he's a genius, and I am always in awe of genius. He's a genius lyricist. He's a Picasso. And I got to talk to him about it, you know, sort of like, you know, you know, you don't want to be too inquisitive, you know, especially with your friends. We're friends. But it was like, finally, we were hanging and I'd known him for years. And I was like, I said, how do you, where does this come from? How do you do this? And he just told me that he uses words he likes the sound of. Yeah. Right. You mean, you can figure out the meaning of it later. Or you can create a meaning of it later if you want to bullshit you. But he's just the genius of phonics. He uses the words that he likes the sound of. I was like, and that's genius. So the two records I did with him, the first Michelle Shock record was totally magic. It was done. The whole record was done in 14 days. Wow. Done. We were done recording, I think, in seven, which was unheard of. Uh, she was super prepared and she was super focused, which she always is as an artist. But um, 
I was just pairing her up because there was a lot of like her and a banjo, her and a dobro, you know, and I brought in good players and paired up with her. There wasn't that many full band tracks on Short Chop Chop, but it's as near a perfect record as I've ever made. Um, I really like my record Even Things Up, and I like my record Birds Above Guitar Land because um, those are definitely records where I'm, I made them of age. I'm, I'm at the age. I'm in full control. I've made many records for other people and now I can, and I don't like to produce myself. I had, I think I Mike Murphy produced me on those, but as far as like getting into, um, the, uh, the sonics of it and, and, the, uh, the production side, as opposed to like the arranging and musical and performance side was Michael working with me, especially singing. But the other side of it, I'm of age of like, I can kill this. I can, I can kill anybody's record with what I know. I can kill it. So those records, uh, I really I really like those records. And there's some charm in the first record I did, Working Class. Um, some, I, I, um, really, I really liked uh, Our Day Will Come off Working Class. I thought that was a really cool track. If you want to hear Steel Licks, yeah. that's the song. That's the... Uh, like I'm not using the volume pedal, but it's like it's got almost my it's like my my uh, my menu of like yeah just go through here. It's like oh that's that one, that's this one, that's the that's the open string, that's the the six, that's the the um, the third. You yeah. know that's got the whole ball of wax in it. It's a beautiful song. It is. A beautiful. Thing, I wanted to cut you know Larry Carlton and all these guys that cut instrumental. They did Sleepwalk, which yeah. I love Sleepwalk, but it's like it's Sleepwalk. Right. So it's like it's well known. And I said, I want to do something like Sleepwalk, but not Sleepwalk. Right. Mm-hmm. Something that's well known, but has not is not known as an instrumental. So I did Our Day Will Come. And I remember being on the road with it and playing it for somebody. And, they were, and it was just like, it was like, yeah, what was that instrumental you played? That, that thing? And I was like, I failed. <laughs> you didn't know it was Our Day Will Come. <laughs> the only I did Our Day Will Come is I thought everybody knows it. But it's like, no, these people that are, <coughs> you know, 10 or 15 years younger than me, they don't have a clue. Right. Our Day, I was a kid. I was like maybe 12 when Our Day Will Come was out. So it goes way back. Yeah. So. Uh, that kind of backfired on me, but it is a beautiful song. And I did it, I redid it on my uh, 60s with a twist. Right. That yeah. song with slide guitar. Yeah. And I'm proud of that record. Those those musicians are really, really good on there. Um, the record I made with Dwight um, uh, this time yeah. is, is pretty hard to surpass that record. Gone is a good record, but if if... This time is an architectural drawing. Gone is a freelance, you know, it's, it's a grandma Moses. I mean, it's a lot looser from my perspective, but the songs are amazing on that record. It yeah. got tortured. It should have been the catalyst to blast him into outer space as a record. It didn't make it um, for other reasons. It wasn't the record. Yeah. But this time, even still, is like, wow, we, we threw down. And we, there was a lot of techno, technology used in making that record. In the early days, Pro Tools was like .01. Yeah. I had the digi guys at the studio every other day. Why well, won't it do this? Make it do that. I want to isolate the hi-hat. We did all kinds of tricks. But it, in, the, in the end result, it's pretty impressive. 
this this time is a is a is a really great record and it 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 made a lot of impact you know here in nashville when you know when people heard it i mean they were just kind of in shock over it it was just you know it's like wow (laughs) you know the bar has really been set high sonically yeah powerful it's a powerful record um Uh, I love the I love the songs on the Steve Forbert record I did, The American in Me. It's a great songwriter. I'm a sucker for great songwriters. I've gravitated towards working with songwriters. Um, he was the, he's the guy that came to me and said, "Here's the ten songs I want to record for the record." And I was like, "Oh my God, we don't have to do anything. These are ready." Yeah. One of the best songs handed to me from day one. I mean, I've made some really good records where we other songs came into play, but never where the guy just said here's here's a 10 i'm doing now it's kind of like kind of like dylan or something like wow impressive um uh, set of songs he's a i love great songwriters i'm i'm uh, enamored by great songwriters in awe all right pete well thank you so much for uh giving so freely of your time and and sharing you know your uh your insight and and wisdom and uh you know a real treat so uh thank you for uh for for talking with me today pete and uh very very honored and uh may you be blessed thanks buddy you too okay everybody stay safe all right all right bye-bye